Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey, welcome back. So there's a few things that I want to talk about today, but I want to start off with the topic I mentioned in the title of this video and give you guys an update on the Federal Reserve and their desperate uh, attempts to to inject more and more liquidity into the financial system. This is something I and, and many others have, have cataloged at length over well, the past couple months, honestly, but even just the last week and some of the Fed's most uh, recent and most desperate actions uh, involving uh, largely their, their interventions in the repo markets. Repo markets being short-term funding, uh, markets that, that financial institutions use when they uh, are, are short on liquidity, short on, on cash, and have a ton of other assets such as mortgage-backed securities or, or U.S. treasuries to, to use as basically collateral for, for a very short-term loan. And, and this is something that has, I mean, the re, re, repo markets are, are a very important part of, of a properly functioning financial system in today's world. It's something that the uh, Fed has also been uh, active in since September of this year. Actually, the, the Fed actually hadn't been very active in it since the financial crisis. Um, but beginning in September through now, they've been very active, ultimately culminating in a recent announcement from the Fed on Thursday involving um, a, a, a huge additional series of injections of liquidity where, where the Fed basically is is helping increase the funding in these short-term funding markets, increasing the liquidity in these uh, through or around uh, year end, and and when you add it all together, you know the headline number is is around a half trillion dollars that the Fed is is injecting through this repo market operations, as well as some some QE as well. And what blows my mind is is a couple things. Um, first of all, the the complacency, the complacency among traders and investors and analysts as well as just markets showing that people I don't think realize just how big this is that the Fed is intervening in such a way. I I mean this is remember the Fed in in relative terms prior to their first rate cut this this summer was not pushing overly tight monetary policy. They weren't uh, they the the Fed funds rate at the time, if I remember correctly, was I think between two and a quarter and and two and a half percentage points, which historically speaking is very low. It's high relative to the huge amount of debt that we have today, the record levels of debt, because because that level of debt factors into this consideration as well. But relatively low. The Fed uh, balance sheet at the time was. Uh, very high, even though they had been unwinding it through quantitative tightening where they just let assets roll off the balance sheet, their support for, for the U.S. bond market was still very high. They were still holding uh, a huge amount of U.S. debt as well as mortgage-backed securities, essentially still providing that extra supply to the market, keeping yields down and helping fund the U.S. government, right? And in addition to that, the Bank of Japan and the ECB were also undergoing um, 
shift towards easier monetary policy, or at least in the case of the ECB, that the Bank of Japan was, if I remember correctly, was already there. The People's Bank of China and, and the Chinese government had continued to, to inject more and more uh, uh, credit into the system uh, in in 2019, and so that's where we're at heading into towards you know the the second half of 2019 is already central banks were relatively easy in terms of their monetary policy, uh, the, the fiscal stimulus of of the 2018 tax cuts as well as uh, uh, Chinese uh, credit stimulus was was still in place, and yet the Fed still needed to cut rates three times, and inject all this liquidity through a new round of quantitative easing as well as the repo market operations. In fact, Zero Hedge has a stat that over the last six months, the Fed has, uh, not the Fed, the world central banks, including the U.S., the Fed, have cut rates 51 times. That's the most times since uh, the financial crisis, which, which far eclipsed that number. But 51 times, and the Fed only accounts for three of those. It's maybe the three most important cuts because of the size of the U.S. economy and the Fed and all that. But 51 cuts just in the last six months. That's the backdrop for where we're at right now. The Fed and other central banks cutting rates almost as though it's it's 2008 or 2009, injecting liquidity at a faster rate than, if I remember correctly, ever before. I mean, what is there to be optimistic about in this situation? Well, I mean, I'll tell you what, what there's to be optimistic about. Uh, in terms of, of the stock market, it's, it's clear to me that stocks today are a reflection of liquidity and credit growth. Nothing more. That doesn't mean it's always going to be the case. doesn't mean that it always is the case. Other things come into consideration. But those are the two largest driving factors. When you look at the Fed balance sheet over the last couple months, on weeks that it grew, hey, guess what? So did the stock market. The stock market went up. And I think there's one or two weeks in there in which it didn't. And the stock market went down. It seems so easy. And in fact, you know, dating back to, to 2008, 2009, it was, you know, with QE following the financial crisis. It, with with an increase in the balance sheet of the Fed, the stock market goes up. And it's frustrating because we see all these analysts um, seemingly, you know, there are occasionally some bright ones that are concerned about this or saying like that something's not right about this. This is uh, not normal. This is signifying that there's something seriously wrong with our, our financial system and the Fed's papering over it, and, and markets should be concerned about it. But the vast majority of analysts are basically saying, well, look, more credit injection or liquidity injection, good. Uh, markets are going to go up, and we're going to buy and hold those markets or those assets, those stocks. And 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 then on the gold and silver side of things, it's just sideways trading, which is frustrating. I think it's complacency. I mean, I don't expect them to go up today, you know, with today's iteration of this, this – uh, balance sheet expansion with, with today's iteration of repo market operations. It was an additional $50 billion that the Fed offered. It was oversubscribed, indicating that central banks, or, or sorry, other banks, financial institutions, uh, still have a higher demand for liquidity. What the Fed is doing today is, is still not enough. Uh, don't worry, there's plenty more on the way, but it still hasn't been enough. It's still oversubscribed. And, and silver and gold are acting as though nothing really happened. I think it's complacency. I think there's an element of manipulation as well, I'm sure. 
but a lot of it's, I think, just complacency. Complacency by the stock market, by silver and gold, and it's, it's, uh, it's frustrating. Maybe I'm feeling a little cynical today. I am. I'll admit that, and, and I think that plays into this, how I'm, how I'm talking about this today. But it's frustrating because it seems as though none of this matters, as though the Fed can go on doing this forever. But, look, I wouldn't still have a channel here. I wouldn't still be talking if I thought that was the case. Because they can't. You know, the good news here is that there are there's vindication for those of us on the sidelines shouting at the top of our lungs or, or passively just watching everything fall down. Either way is fine with me. Uh, there's going to be vindication for us when ultimately what the Fed does is not enough or what the Fed does is too much. I'm talking inflation. Right, it's coming eventually, and to some extent, it already is. In fact, I put out what I think is a pretty good piece last week, talking about silver and gold, and, and what would their value be like if, if inflation, the real inflation number, is actually publicized, which is probably at least five percent here in the United States. And and yes, silver and gold would be much higher, but but the gist of that video was there'd be a lot of other considerations as well. The balance sheets of of banks the world over would be absolutely destroyed because of the treasuries that they hold and, and how much value those treasuries would lose. Uh, the, the value of, of a lot of savers would, would be um, what's already being destroyed, but it would be even more evident. I think a lot of people would be less willing to put their money into savings accounts or, or bonds or, or CDs or, or assets like that, right? Uh, and that sort of brings me into my next topic here. That's that's my repo market madness wrap up. It's it's frustrating, but it is what it is. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about today was an article that I actually saw over the weekend over from Wolf Street, run by a guy by the name of Wolf Richter. Really excellent uh, analysis. puts out you know usually like an article a day, um, and, and this one is titled "My Quote Pickup Truck Price Index End Quote Crushes Quote CPI for New Vehicles End Quote." Basically, what, what Wolf Richter is doing here is, is comparing his own comparison on the price of, of cars, in this case pickup trucks, as well as he shows his, his past segment um, cars, sedans, compared to CPI for new vehicles. So this will blow your mind. We'll start off with CPI for new vehicles, CPI being Consumer Price Index. Over the last 20, what is it, 28 years, Going back to 1990, so 28, 29 years, the CPI for new cars, anybody, you want to take a guess at how much it has risen? 50%, 80%, 100%, 150%. I mean, we've had a fair bit of inflation since 1990. Just how much has car values inflated according to CPI, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics? A whopping 22%. 22 percent inflation in the price of a car or, or new car prices since 1990. And what's even more astounding about that is that most of that rise came between 1990 and 1997. The CPI since then has been almost flat. From 97 to 2009, it was down, and then it rose after 2009 until maybe 2014, 2015, and since then it's been flat. 22 percent, meaning in theory, if back in 1990 you could buy a, a stock, um, you know, pick a car, a sedan or whatever, 
for 10 grand. You know, maybe that's stock, maybe that's with some extra features, but for 10 grand. Today, you could buy that equivalent today at a little over $12,000. 12,000, you know, somebody do the math for me there. 12,200, right? And of course, that's not the case. And, and he demonstrates this, and he's talking about. Uh, well, he starts off with two different two different cars that here here in the United States are, I guess, some of the most popular selling models over that time period. And there's plenty that have come and gone, but there are two in particular that he focuses on that are sort of timeless. And that is, of course, the Ford F one fifty and the Toyota Camry. So this is really excellent work, and I'm going to put the title in the link of this if I if I remember to or title of this, the link to this in the uh, comment section. So to demonstrate this, the Toyota Camry uh, in uh, from, from 1990 to, to 2019, 2020, whatever. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply the newest model year is has increased 70 percent in that time span 70 percent since 1990 of course cpi for new cars is 22 percent and so why is this important it's it's showing us more and more lies from from the u.s government trying to suppress value of inflation and i'll talk about how they did that here in a minute because obviously if you just look at the value the, the price that's gone up since then well it's it's obvious it should be 70%. I'll get to that here in a second. But but when you have something like new car prices, which is a decent amount of, of an average U.S. consumer's budget, it's probably the second largest purchase they're ever going to make in their lifetime with the exception of a house or, or you know an RV or a camper or a cabin or something like that, land. Uh, it's this type of, of distortion of this data over the long term suppresses it shows lower inflation values than what what reality actually indicates it's lies it's manipulation of data and so how does the fed or sorry how does the the bls the bureau of labor statistics do this well they do it through uh what they call um hedonic value adjustments i think that's the term here and i'm, and I'm going to find it here exactly but basically uh, yeah, hedonic quality adjustments. Okay, so basically, what this is is when they basically look at different cars, different. It doesn't matter. Different products. It doesn't even have to be a car. Different products that they include in their CPI, right? And what they do is they make adjustment adjustments based on on change of quality of those assets over time, and so. Obviously, a 1990 Ford F-150. Maybe maybe some of you guys like those older trucks, but let's be honest. They they don't really compare to today's trucks. Yes, there are some downsides to today's trucks. Uh, they or, or just today's vehicles in general. 
they're they're oftentimes over engineered maybe they have far too many, I think, electrical components, which oftentimes have a short lifespan. Overall, the, the, the lifetime of the car, because of a lot of those electric components versus the, the, uh, the mechanical components, uh, I think shorten the overall lifespan because it's harder to find replacement parts for those. Um, and some of it's just overly complex, more than you, what you actually need. But basically, the gist of this is that in that time span, those improvements basically go into the CPI. So in that time span from 1990 to, to 2019, right, the F-150 has a different transmission, different engine. Uh, it, it Most likely the base model went from, from rolling windows to power windows. I don't know. Maybe they still have rolling uh, manual windows in, in the newest, the, the, the base model. Uh, but then other things too, uh, the stereo system, right, the electronic car uh, uh, control system, right? Uh, the the tires and, and the, the rims and whatnot have changed. The suspension's changed. The bed of the truck, materials used to build the truck have changed. Uh, uh, there's more airbags today in the truck than there was in the past. Trucks generally are safer today than they were in the past, right? Uh, the the uh, Everything in the gauges and whatnot look different and, and probably cost more money today, right? Or at least have, have more technology in them today. So all of those things have changed over this 29-year time span. And, and what the BLS basically does is they factor into that and kind of make arbitrary adjustments based on that. And they basically say, well, look, um, the car has gotten so much or the truck has gotten so much better over this time period. So yes, the, the cost has increased X amount of dollars, but in reality, we're going to say that it only increased 22%, right? So in the case of the Camry, which I said was 70%, um, the Ford F-150 actually blows that out of the water, especially because of how much uh, trucks just get more expensive over the last 10 years. 163% rise, right? This is for the Ford F-150 XLT, which back in 1990 was probably around $13,000. Today, sits around $34,000, 163%. But the Fed as a whole, or sorry, I keep saying the Fed, but the BLS, because this isn't so important to the Fed, and of course it's the federal government as well, but, but the BLS says that new car prices have changed a whopping 22%. Despite two of the most popular car and truck models, F-150 and the Camry over that time period, increasing uh, 163 and 70% respectively. CPI is 22% because of these hedonic quality adjustments. Because they say that you get more bang for your buck now, which is ridiculous. These are reasonable expectations from a consumer. In fact, I would go so far as to say that regulators wouldn't even allow what was uh, standard in 1990 to, to be on the lot in 2019. I mean, you look at what had what what the 1990 truck had to, compared to what they have today in terms of safety, in terms of the suspension, in terms of airbags. Um, plus, these are just normal improvements that honestly don't factor a whole lot into to the cost of a vehicle, right? Obviously, the engine's better today, but is it that much more expensive? I mean, maybe a little bit. 
but but everything is changed. I mean, you, you just have a change in technology, a change in, in machining, different changes in, in, in tooling of these equipment, and 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 of course you have the increased autom- autom- automation of these um, factories and and all that. So I mean, yes, obviously cars are better today, and it'd be unrealistic to say that they wouldn't be. But but for but but when we're still looking at basically the base model or model or close to the base model for these two vehicles, the the F- XLT for the F one fifty and the LE for the Camry, uh, they're still pretty close to bare bones or pretty close to the stock or the base model. And so, I mean, this is not the only case where this is true. This is true for a lot of other consumer goods, which admittedly have improved over the last thirty years personal computers, uh, cell phones, uh, TVs, uh, you name it, right? They've improved over the years. But their price has also gone up in many cases, not not as much as cars. A lot of those actually have gotten cheaper over the years because a lot of that technology was so rare back in the day and it was so expensive, right? TVs and whatnot, so much more expensive to build. Um, but but today it's it's much... Um, it, those Those quality adjustments in the CPI model, distort the overall price inflation. And so what it shows is that, I mean, what, what it really comes down to, as I'll put it this way, what it really comes down to is what does it cost for an average person to live, right? The cost of living, right? And so to buy an F-150 from 1990 in 2019, you know, the exact same setup basically is not realistic if you want an f-150 you basically have what they have on the lot to choose from same thing goes for the toyota camry right even if it's improved over the years that's what you have to choose from your cost of living has increased 70 or 163 percent depending if you want a car or a truck as it relates to your choice of transportation Right? And I do think trucks are overly expensive. I think they're they're more luxury items in today than they were in the past. And and certainly I'm not saying that these are necessary parts of everyone's life, but but consumer goods generally aren't necessary, right? At least at, at the type that we buy. The point is, is that the cost of living has increased. And the CPI is not capturing that. The CPI is saying, well, look, these cars have gotten better though. So is it really more expensive? But at the end of the day, today's trucks, today's cars are just as, if not less, reliable than they have been in the past. Like, who cares if you can roll your windows up and down with, with a switch or a button as opposed to rolling them up and down? When it's all said and done, you, your car still only lasts, you know, 150,000 miles, 200,000 miles, right? I mean, Toyota Camrys, heck, in the 90s, Toyota Camrys, Toyotas as a whole were... They're still on the road today. They were some of the most reliable cars out there. And and I'm sure they're still great today. But I I honestly doubt that they're going to still last that long, right? And so, I mean, cost of living, who cares if your stereo system is a little better? Who cares if your ride is a little safer, a little smoother, a little bit more fuel efficient or more powerful? The cost of living is what it's about. That's what CPI should be capturing. And yet it's not. It's lies, right? This isn't an accident that the CPI constantly underestimates inflation. It's not. It's deliberate manipulation of data through excuses like saying hedonic quality adjustments say that the you know it actually hasn't inflated that much over this period of time, but it's deliberate. 
Because if they tell the truth about inflation, you have a huge, a whole host of problems. All of a sudden, Social Security benefits go up, pension benefits go up, the, the cost that governments have to pay for those things. The cost to borrow for the U.S. government goes up, the, the interest rate on treasuries. Uh, the, the appetite for treasuries goes down. The appetite for gold and silver go up. The tendency to save money or even use the dollar goes down, and that can create an inflationary spiral. But this is all just lies. This is all just manipulation of data. And and I'm here to tell you the truth about this, that cars, at least, uh, have gotten a lot lot more expensive in the last 29 or 30 years than the U.S. government would like you to think. So as always, thank you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in to today's podcast, and God bless.